You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Today's podcast is sponsored by my new favorite animated TV show, Tuttle Twins the first cartoon series to teach kids principles of freedom, economics, and liberty, and to be funny in the process. Nowadays, hidden political agendas are constantly forced on your kids in entertainment and in schools. Tuttle Twins is a hilarious cartoon series that teaches kids about the principles of freedom without being overly preachy. It's educational and hilarious, and there are lots of jokes for adults too. The best part? You can watch Tuttle Twins entirely for free. Just go to TuttleTwins.tv, that is TuttleTwins, T-U-T-T-L-E-T-W-I-N-S.tv, and over there, you can watch all of the episodes for free. One more time, that's TuttleTwins.tv. Highly recommend it. Go check it out. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a student and writer. Her name is Ricky Schlott. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So I've done a brief intro right there, Ricky, but let people know who you are and what it is that you do. Yes. So I am a 21-year-old student in New York City um, studying history at Columbia. And during the pandemic, I took time off of school and accidentally became a journalist in the process, just looking to bring some kind of reasonable, right-leaning, moderate libertarian voices to the forefront as someone in Gen Z, because there's clearly a dearth of people that fit that profile. Um, speaking out. And so right now I'm a columnist at the New York Post. I'm a fellow at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Um, And I'm also hosting a podcast called The Lost Debate. And so I have uh, a lot of little projects going on, but um, having fun kind of launching into the media world right now. Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about your background. What was, what's the story before you got into this crazy world of social and cultural commentary? Um, so my background is obviously pretty brief because I'm 21, so I don't have a, any sort of job background. But I was at NYU actually during the pandemic studying history um, and always kind of a political person um, in a more conservative family growing up. But I grew up uh, going to a very woke boarding school and then NYU. And so I was um, taught from a very young age to just kind of sit in my hands and not really speak out politically. And even though I was passionate about it, I would like hide my Thomas Sowell books in my dresser in my college dorm room so that (laughs) people wouldn't find them. And like, it was, it was something that I'd always been implicitly taught. And then the lockdown happened and I had been planning to go to law school, go down a very kind of buttoned up straight and narrow path. And I realized like the world is going crazy. There's no one in my generation that is 
speaking up from a more conservative perspective without being nails on the chalkboard and like actually trying to have conversations with people and bridge divides and not just inflame things. And so I decided to um, modestly do my part in trying to attempt to bring a different voice and perspective into the journalism world and realize that it's way more important to stand up and actually just speak out for what you believe in and and open yourself up to critique and debate and have those conversations than to just sit on your hands and pretend that nothing's really happening. And in the pandemic, things got so insane and so out of control that I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself out there. And luckily, um, clearly I hit a nerve because within like a year, I was a columnist at the Post and it's been a really fun ride so far. And I'm just kind of seeing where it goes. Awesome, well, so, good for yeah. you on what you've already accomplished. I'm curious Thank about you. the notion of a woke boarding school. I also went to boarding <laughs> school, but my boarding school definitely okay. wasn't woke. Um, so I'm curious yeah. to know more about this woke boarding school. Um, so I went to a school like right by Princeton University in New Jersey. I was a day student, which I enjoyed because I, I didn't really feel like it was super healthy to be 14 and like away from your family quite yet. So I was living at home. But I went to this boarding school and I remember I grew up in like a very moderate area of New Jersey where some of my friends' parents were Republicans and some were Democrats and it didn't matter and we were all friends and we disagreed, but that wasn't a big deal. And then I got there when I was 14 and I remember it was Martin Luther King Day and we had, instead of having the day off, because like they didn't want teenagers just out doing whatever, so they keep us, they'd always keep us occupied on holidays. And we had a day where they brought us all in and... They then separated us into different buildings by our race for affinity groups, which obviously today that's not that big of a deal because we hear about that all the time. And like, we're talking about this, like with the CRT debate, like that's just, you hear that in the news and all oh, this, this woke school is doing this or that, but this was 2014. So this was way before this conversation started. And they were like cutting edge, woke, terrible idea on MLK day of all days to say, okay, 14 year olds go into separate, uh, separate buildings by what race you're in and have a conversation about about race because only the people that look like you can understand and so I remember that was I was super young I was 14 but I remember sitting there that day and thinking like something's wrong like I don't agree with this culture <laughs> like this is ridiculous and then from there we had to um we just sit in like lectures we had a list that we could choose from and i remember the one i ended up in was about bruce lee and asian masculinities and i like don't even know what that means other ones were um like intersectional feminism and like just crazy stuff for 14 year olds so i mm. i got thrust into the forefront of this stuff uh pretty much from like the ripe young age of 14 and then the Trump election happened when I was a sophomore or a junior. So like when I was 16 and things just got out of control on my school. Um, I was canceled pretty quickly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I um, for being more conservative, uh, people apparently had been like whispering about the fact that my parents are Republicans, which whew, um such a big deal apparently but um yeah there was a whole social media explosion over that at my school and it was um it was just you know it's just petty teenage stuff but unfortunately in the cancel culture age where there's kind of a winner and a loser consistently mm -hmm. it ended up being socially pretty consequential but um it taught me pretty fast to just shut up and kind of ignore politics but obviously now i'm refusing to do that so <laughs> here i am <laughs> Mm. I, How yeah. did that affect you as a teenager? I mean, it's 
it's weird because, you know, like the speed at which things have changed is, Mm -hmm. is pretty mind blowing. You know, it's weird. Even if I talk to people who are like 10 years younger than me, say there's actually, Mm -hmm. um, can be some really big differences because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mid thirties. So I'm in the last generation where, you know, thus far, like half my life was pre social media, smartphones. And, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I remember the world without the internet. Um, and then for someone who's like 10 years younger than me or more, it's like, oh, wow, you know, since their entire <laughs> lives, there's been smartphones, yep. there's been broadband internet everywhere, there's been social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of these things. So even though, you know, a decade in the grand scheme of things is not, it's not a gigantic amount of time, it's so totally. weird how much it's changed. I graduated university in 2007, right? Mm. I was there 2004 mm-hmm. to 2007. And all of these excesses and crazy ideas yeah. were would have been unfathomable even that yeah. recently so it's really That's weird so to hear you know not not just in universities but in schools even in private schools how these ideas have just gripped a hold um yeah I, I don't think everyone appreciates just how recent it all is oh my gosh totally and it was like an explosion i don't know if you're familiar with the coddling of the american mind the book Jonathan Knight. um yeah and greg lukianoff is his co-author on that mm. and greg and i are working very closely at fire now um i do a fellowship with him and you know he's he's taught me a ton about the history of this and essentially in 2014 this was this like explosion of gen z all of a sudden coming onto college campuses and demanding the safe spaces the trigger warnings of this of that and like i've seen it all firsthand but um that was when I was I was in boarding school, and then obviously at NYU that just continued and was even more bizarre. But um, you know, uh, to your question about how this impacts you as a teenager, I think that's one of the reasons that I'm speaking out now is because I have I have parents come to me who say like my middle schooler was canceled, and I just can't even figure out. For me, it was when I was 15 or 16. I can't even imagine when I was 11, and I I the psychology like you're still developing you're questioning things you're supposed to screw up you're supposed to say dumb things when you're a teenager you're supposed to grapple with like controversial and touchy ideas and i think my generation is just being stunted like intellectually emotionally by this idea that we need to be protected from things or that we can only think a certain way or that um if we say something or make a mistake or trip up like we don't have a freedom to fumble and screw up or I just, I don't know where we're going to go or, or how we're going to break down barriers or, or discover new things if we're not questioning what's being put in front of us. And I just, I mean, I felt it personally growing up with this, um, this self-censorship and this kind of dissonance between how I was thinking on the inside and how I was expressing myself or, or seeing other people with, with more mainstream political beliefs, just being able to talk nonstop about politics in class and, mm-hmm. and not even have a debate or a conversation. And I, I mean, I worry about what it's going to do to my generation. And just even at a, a progressive enough school like NYU, I, I started speaking out and then people are like coming out of the woodwork to say like, oh, I agree with you, but like, don't say anything or don't tell anyone, which is mm-hmm. just such an unhealthy, unhealthy way to grow up. And I can't even imagine had that come up when I was even younger, like these kids today, what what my world would look like or how I would feel. It's incredible. Mm. What was the social pressure like to conform or 
to just shut up? Um, I mean, it was just an undeniable, especially at NYU. Like I had professors on the first day say, like completely disparage half of the country for their political beliefs, just mm-hmm. out and out. Like, this is my, this is my vantage point. And it's not, I'm professors not saying like, I, I would respect it if they were saying, here's what I believe. What do you believe? Or, yeah. or here's the counter argument, or let's have a conversation about it. But it was almost explicitly here are my beliefs, period, end of story. This is, the way that we work. And unfortunately, I think that's a product of the fact that academia was kind of the incubator for this, this illiberalism and this intellectual conformity. And so the professorship is kind of weeded out all the, all the people who think a little differently, they've been canceled, or they haven't, they haven't gotten promoted, or it's harder to get tenure. And so, um, you know, the pressure is immense, it's enormous. And, you know, even on social media, just to, to do whatever performative, like black square or your pronouns or this or that, like it's, it's just social death if you don't almost mm-hmm. entirely. And so, I mean, also it's, I'm kind of at fault for picking a urban school like NYU, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, it's, it's definitely, I think there was one poll, it's not an official poll from the school, but um, it found that there were more self-identified communists than conservatives on my campus. So that, that kind of gives me. you an idea. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what course do you do? Um, so I am actually on leave right now. I transferred to Columbia during this whole kind of journalism thing. Um, so I'm moving to a non-traditional student program because I will be taking quite a lot longer than expected to finish my degree while also working professionally. Um, but I'm studying history. So okay. that's my plan for undergrad. Uh, so where do you think that your values come from. So being 21 years old, uh, being in New York, having gone to this boarding school and so on, you, I doubt that you were, uh, my gut instinct probably tells me that you were and are in more company than it feels like. But what do you think it is that number one stopped you from getting swept into this ideology and number two has given you the courage and the boldness to speak and write about it all. Um, so I think I, my mom is 58, my dad's 84. So within my family, I'm, I have half siblings, but I'm essentially an only child. And so we span three generations. And I think that a lot of my friends who were raised by a parent that was just a generation older than them. You know, there's a there's kind of a slow cultural progression towards this liberalism, this wokeness, this kind of political extremism. But having somebody like my father, who's my best friend in life, essentially, who remembers World War II, who remembers this huge breadth of history, who is connected to a different ideological time that most people my age haven't been exposed to. I think that just anchored me in made me a little more resistant to the generational tides. Like I grew up listening to Elvis and not like mainstream music in my generation. And so I've been a little more nostalgic. I've been more interested in history and, you know, like my dad's like, you know, these safe spaces and the trigger warnings and the, the insulation and stuff like toughen up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And I think having that connection is really important. And I anecdotally seeing how many people, 
actually do kind of feel similarly to me or are interested in different opinions, but are afraid to speak up has just made me decide that, mm. you know, there, courage is contagious. And as soon as you step out there and actually start speaking your truth, then other people end up feeling more secure and comfortable to do the same. And so that's why I decided to start speaking out. Yeah, that's awesome. And I have to say, Ricky, I, I totally admire that because there are many, many people who are 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years your senior, and they don't have that level of courage just mm -hmm. to simply express their opinions, put themselves out there, say what they believe in, deal with some of the backlash, have conversations, have debates, yeah. have discussions. Um, and, you know, I understand where that fear comes from, but I think that the huge problem we've been dealing with over the past couple of decades, if people want to know how these ludicrous ideas have managed to take such a strong root in Western society over the past 10 to 12 years, it is because the same people remain silent. And I have learned that, you know, people like to lean on the silent majority thing, which I think is a cope. And it's like, look, if you're silent, then whether or not you're the majority doesn't matter. Exactly. A vocal minority will beat a silent majority. We've seen this many, many times throughout history. And I often say, look, not everyone needs to become an activist. You don't need to become a, a journalist or a writer or a podcaster. But if in your day-to-day -day life, you can just be that little bit more bold and courageous at your school, at your workplace, in your day-to-day -day conversations, online, at your university, then you will quickly realize that most people are sane. They're just afraid. And this fear barrier is a massive problem for several years at this point. I've been trying to work out how to make people a little more courageous or just encourage them. And oftentimes yeah. it's something that can cause some tension between myself and my audience because I'm like, guys, like you have to be a bit more bold and courageous. It can't just be me and a few other people who are out there willing to take some flack, right? And I'm not even saying you've got to be conservative or right-wing or libertarian, just sane, just sane people yeah. who are reasonable and who are willing to have these conversations. That's what we need. Yeah, totally. And I think that a lot of the burden is going to fall on younger people to do that because I think the reason why so many older people have been hesitant to is they have more to lose. And I was just a college kid that didn't even hadn't even finished school and I didn't have a career that I'd already invested in or I wasn't trying to get somewhere into a corporation where I was afraid I was mm -hmm. going to lose my job. And so I respect people. I'll, I'll like tell you, you I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I uh I think you're being humble. I think you're being overly humble because no matter what position people are in, they there's always an excuse. There is always an excuse yeah. not to do it, right? You could say, oh, well, you know, I'm worried about, you know, I'm, I'm in university or I'm in school and it's this and I could get canceled and, you know, I don't want to risk not being able to get a job. And then when someone gets a job, they're afraid of losing their job and they say, oh, if I were independent and I had more money and then someone becomes independent and they have all this money and now they're worried about losing sponsors or they're worried about not getting this contract. People think, oh, if I were... If I were this person with $100 million, if I had FU money, I'd suddenly be bold and courageous. And I'm like, no, you would not, right? Do you know how many celebrities, athletes, actors, famous musicians and whatever have DM'd me, has messaged me saying, man, Zuby, I love what you're doing. I love what you're speaking, but I can't do what you do, right? I'm afraid of yeah. losing this contract. I'll get canceled by Hollywood. I'll get... So that is always there. It's always there. So I, I would actually push back on you discrediting your own 
courage there because whether people have, everyone has stuff to lose. Everyone does, yeah. you know, and yeah. having courage is not about there not being any fear or there not being any risk. It's like, look, there is some, there's some risk, there's some concern, but the concern, you know, but I'm willing to, to go out and do it anyway. And also I think people think really short term with this stuff, right? They're not mm-hmm. thinking what are the consequences of not speaking up? Right. Do you yeah. think all this is going to just naturally course correct? No, it's not. It's going to get worse. If you're worried about what's going on with Gen Z right now, I, I don't yeah. even know what, what, what comes after Gen Z. What's next? Oh my gosh. There's a name for them. I can't even remember. <laughs> um, oh, Gen Alpha, I think. Is the it next goes one. back to A? They're starting, they're okay. starting the Greek, Greek numerical thing. Okay. That. Yeah. So if you, yeah, people so, are already worried about millennials. The iPad generation. I've had, yeah, exactly. So if you think that this is going to course correct, it's not, it's going to keep on getting worse until those same people are willing to be courageous and say, look, no, draw a line and say, look, people are open to change, open to discussion, open to ideas, but not all change is a forward movement. Not all change is positive. Going back to having schools and universities, racially segregating people, it's a bad idea, right? That's not progress. Yeah. (laughs) It's not liberal. Can I ask yeah. what were they even hoping to achieve with that? What was their pretext? Um, so the the pretext was the affinity group situation where people would be able to speak more openly about their experiences with uh, with people who've had the same experiences. And of course, I was in a, a group of like randomly assigned uh, hockey bros that were like seniors. And I was this awkward little freshman. And we were all like like, are we supposed to self-flagellate right now? (laughs) It was such a strange um, situation, but they do it all the time now. And like, really, is this, is this a common? Yeah. The affinity groups, like my school was, was um, cutting edge and um, testing that one out. And people were mad about that. Like some people ended up speaking out after, um, but that was because it was 2014. And now it's just like a regular thing that happens because people were taught you you can't you can't push back against this stuff which is which is crap but to your point i completely agree that there's there's safety in numbers and the more people that start speaking out and actually having the guts to do it like you can't cancel half of the country or a third of the country at least that's thinking in a more nuanced way um but what are you i'm curious to get your take what are your thoughts on the elon twitter thing do you think that's going to push free speech and discourse around this stuff forward well well i can tell you that in the past 24 hours i've gained fifteen thousand followers that's crazy or should i say should i say regained because i've had probably over a hundred thousand um suppressed from my my account's been throttled for the past two years and people don't know this because my account still grows and is still big Mm. but i literally saw the barriers come down yesterday wow like it, it literally within an hour boom up a thousand another boom another thousand another like it's it's crazy. There are all these people coming back to Twitter, accounts being reactivated. This is all just since the announcement. Like it's not even official yet. So I know a lot of people, you know, there are even a lot of people, you know, more on the right side of the spectrum who like to be hyper, hyper skeptical and paranoid mm-hmm. about everything. But I certainly think that it is going to be an improvement. I've been on Twitter since 2009 and oh. it's gradually over time got more and more censorious let more and more restrictive, more and more shadow bans and account throttling and all this like just 
yeah. shady background stuff going on. Like for years, I've had people saying, man, like I used to follow you and like I was this morning, I was just unfollowed from your account. Thousands mm-hmm. of those in um, mm-hmm. January 2020. I lost 25,000 followers that month. Wow. Right. Normally, I grow about 25,000 per month and yeah. I just lost 25,000. Right. So there's okay. been all this weird stuff going on. So look, I, Elon Musk does not need to be perfect. It, you know, I don't even getting, you know, the skeptics, I don't trust him. I don't trust I'm like, dude, it, does, it actually doesn't matter if you trust him or not. Like, it doesn't wow. matter. It's going to be a step in the right direction. And just the fact that all these people are freaking out and that there's these meltdowns going on and some of the shadow banning and shady stuff is already being lifted. That yeah. is a good sign. And I think that there are too many people who have gotten so used to losing that they don't know how to even take mm-hmm. a small win, right? They want to play yeah. down everything. You, you saw the same even with the, all, the, all the COVID restrictions dropping and stuff. And people are like, oh, this is part of the secret plan. Like they're just mm-hmm. re- lowering it now so that they can come back. It's like, dude, just take the win. Like yeah. I know you're used to losing because things have been going in a weird direction for so long. But when there is an opening when there is an increase in liberty after it being restricted let's you know push things forward i don't think yeah. the uh, i don't think the doomsayers are mm-hmm. particularly helpful in this regard yeah i mean it's definitely valid to be like let's not take this for granted because we've mm-hmm. had it restricted in the past but um you know i found the elon news so interesting cuz i just wasn't prepared for how openly opposed to free speech so many people are (laughs) unbelievable even even like like top of the line journalists who the whole reason that we even have a media in the first place is because of our first amendment and the freedom to criticize government and those in power and hold them accountable and they're all like freaking out over this free speech issue or even recently there was a girl from i think uva who wrote an op-ed about free speech on campus in the New York times. And people were saying, Oh, if I worked there, I'd be resigning right now. And like, it's just, it's amazing how far our culture has moved from like the fundamental values of free speech and democracy and pluralism. And it's, mm-hmm. it's such a, a like litmus test for how people are thinking the way that they're reacting to this Elon news. It's, it's just yeah. shocking. Very much so. I mean, something that's happened and I've really seen this in, in my own lifetime is just so many inversions, mm. right? I mean, firstly, people we need we everybody needs to stop calling illiberal people liberal. Like that that yeah. term liberal totally. has been destroyed, right? It's been totally. best. It's been. It doesn't mean anything close to what it's supposed to mean or what it used to mean, right? People who yeah. are. Right. I'm, I, I'm hearing people saying like, oh, this person is really liberal. They're pro lockdowns, pro mask mandates, pro vax mandates, anti free speech, pro sense. I'm like, hmm, that's not sounding very liberal to me. I don't call myself yeah. a liberal and um, I'm far more liberal than that person. And I think something that's happened is that conserving liberalism itself has now become a conservative value. Absolutely. And I actually think that I don't like to use the term the terms the left and the right, but I think. Yeah. I really, you know, I've pointed out some errors that I think people on on the right side of the aisle have been making for a while, especially this, uh, you know, this cowardice and the silence and this, uh, you know, constant negative mentality. I think one of the biggest errors people on the left side of the aisle have made is giving the concept of free speech to 
the right side of the political aisle and making that now a conservative value because free speech should not strictly be a conservative value. In fact, it shouldn't be super political, but if it is by proper definitions, free speech is a liberal value. I grew up in, I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a country like that or in places like, uh, you know, China or the place, Free speech, as it's known in the USA, is not a it's not like a core value. It's not it's not a core part of the society and the political system, et cetera. Right. There is censorship. There's things you don't say. There's things you can say which can get you punished, which can get Mm -hmm. you put in jail, et cetera. Um, Now, the liberal notion of free speech, this radical idea that, oh, actually, people should be free to say what they want without threat from the state. And there's also this cultural um line that you can have open discussion and debate of ideas that's like that's like the most foundational liberal concept yeah and it's actually what allowed i mean if you look at the 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 civil rights movements and you know uh rights and legal things being expanded to other people throughout history whether to women or to black people to various minorities to Mm -hmm. uh to gay people and so on that all that, that all came from the bedrock of free speech. Yeah. And so when I meet people who call themselves liberal, who are against this, you often have to remind them that that's how, without free speech, those things wouldn't have happened. You would have still had this segregation. You would have still had discriminatory laws on the books if people mm-hmm. were not allowed to protest and exercise their right to freedom of speech. All of your heroes would have been suppressed. They all would have just been thrown in prison and they wouldn't have been able to do that. But I think now, you know, people have this very short term view of things and they just think, oh, my gosh, if there's free speech, you know, these magical Nazis and white supremacists in my in my imagination that that hardly exist in real life, they're all going to go and, you know, blow up democracy. Uh, no one ever explains this mm-hmm. whole threat to democracy thing. They just keep repeating it. And it's yeah. like you're literally saying that more people being able to express their opinions is a threat to democracy like you need to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I when I started getting more politically interested and active, I I was looking into John Stuart Mill and classical liberalism and like the very tenets of this sort of thing. And I'm realizing like, oh, the word liberal has been almost um, tarnished in my mind just because I my political consciousness is post 2016. Mm. But um you know, I think I'm a classical liberal, like that definition applies to me as a person. And it's amazing to see how like leftism has just sort of taken the place of where liberal liberalism Mm. has been historically and should be. And, you know, someone like Bill Maher, who's been on TV and for forever, and like the whole, the whole world moves away from some of these kind of old school Democrat people who today are, are sweethearts of the conservative side, because every once in a while, they say something that's kind of nuanced, or maybe pokes fun at the left. Mm -hmm. And so it's really amazing. But yeah, to your point, it's, it's really unfortunate that I think, almost everyone, like our whole society has lost touch with the fact that free speech requires you to tolerate people, even like the most despicable people or the people with Mm -hmm. whom you agree with the most vehemently. And it's really sad to see our society move away from that because that's, that's so important. And historically, so many things to your point have been, even in academia or different scientific theories have been the fringe thing until it turns out to be the truth. And of course, Mm -hmm. there's 
there's trial and error, but sunlight is the best disinfectant and like getting ideas out there and having conversations about them are, are so important. And I find myself, even in this podcast I'm doing now, I'm kind of the resonant right-wing voice. And I, I find myself becoming more, more stable in what I'm actually bringing to the table because I'm realizing, okay, there are people who disagree with me that are going to bring scrutiny to this and are going to make sure that I'm actually um, completely solid on all my points. And so it makes you, when you interact with people that are outside of the political divide and on the other side with you or the other side from you, Mm -hmm. then you become stronger in what you actually believe. And maybe that means that what you believe kind of shifts and changes and it becomes more nuanced and that's a great Mm -hmm. healthy thing, but you can't do that unless you expose yourself to different views. And unfortunately, like you look at the statistics of people saying like the majority of Democrats don't have a single Republican friend or whatever. Mm -hmm. I I don't Mm -hmm. remember statistics offhand, but really staggering. And if you never have conversations with people, it becomes so easy to straw man them and to see them as some sort of caricatured extreme. But obviously our culture is not, um, it's just going to continue to polarize unless we start figuring that out. Absolutely. You know, and it's not good for humanity for people to constantly viewing, to be viewing each other as enemies in this very binary fashion. Yeah. So you can have ideological opponents, you can have people whom you disagree with, and that's fine. That's always going to exist when you have diversity and you just have a range of personality types and experiences. But there's a line between that and hatred Mm -hmm. and demonization and dehumanization and wishing for death or sickness or harm um, on other people, right? That's Mm -hmm. when you can tell that people are getting really detached from humanity. When you see people casting away their friendships, casting away their relationships, you know, not talking to their parents, their children, their brothers, their sisters, and so on, because they disagree about the COVID vaccine or because one of them voted for Trump and one of them voted for Hillary or mm-hmm. one of them likes uh, this person or other likes that person or disagreeing on, um, you know, how serious the issue of climate change is or what should be done yeah. about it. Like that's so ludicrous. Cause if you think when people are doing that, you are literally putting, you are directly putting politics or sometimes even a political party above your family, above yeah. your friends. You are saying that my allegiance to said political party and politicians who don't even know my name, they, that is, that allegiance is more important than my own family. It's more important than a friend I've been friends with for a decade or two, all of that. And that is, um, I, to me, I find that deeply sad. I find that deeply sad. Um, I think with every single person whom I'm very close to, I have at least one big disagreement with, like at least one, (laughs) oftentimes many. And that is, that's normal, right? That's just part of being an adult and being a human. And you need to be able to not just tolerate, but enjoy having people around you who might have different perspectives on some things. And look, there are, there are issues which I think are a little bit more black and white for sure, Mm -hmm. but there's also so much stuff that we just don't know. And we're not sure about in which you're open to new information and things are changing, you know, you always have to keep those doors open. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as, as you grow up, as you, as you, as time goes on, your perspectives change on things and, and they should, right. If you believe the exact same things at 35 or 45, as you did when you were 15 or 25, 
like there's something there's something wrong there right yeah. you should be able to grow and expand and we we don't all have the answers and i think a lot of people don't like having this level of humility and i think it's good to be very confident um mm -hmm. but you can be very confident but also be very humble and be very open-minded yeah. right so i can put forth my ideas and say this is what i believe and here's why i believe it and here's why i defend it and here's why i think this is a bad idea or this is a good idea um but i could be wrong yeah i could be wrong if you've got a better argument for me if you've got some facts or data or statistics or something that might change my perspective i'm i'm open let's talk but some people don't want to do that they just want to close that door say i'm right everybody else is wrong and I think it's lazy and I think it's cowardly. Totally agree. I think what is the term epistemic humility? Like, mm. I think that's what you're getting at. The idea that um, like there's it's so profound how little each of us know. And it's almost such a gift to meet someone else with a different perspective because you're learning a little bit more through them. And it's so sad to see our culture move away from that. Um, I'm curious to get your take. Do you think that in part that's a reflection or a result of the two-party system and how we kind of have right and left or red and blue? Yeah. I mean, I, I often say to my American friends that I can't believe that in a country of almost 350 million people, <laughs> there's only two major political parties. Um, that certainly doesn't help because it makes things and people appear more binary than they are in reality. Um, yeah. I made this point in the first ever Joe Rogan interview. I said, we're living in an age where gender is a spectrum but politics is binary right yeah, so it's yeah. just, you know, liberal and conservative left and right you know yeah. blue and red and i'm like dude it's so much more nuanced and complicated by that it's also there's also different parts to it it's it's what people believe you know which is the conclusions they've arrived at but the epistemology as you alluded to is also really important right why why do you believe that because if you go a little bit earlier along the epistemological train, you'll typically find that you agree with each other up into a point, and then there's a place where it diverges. Yeah. So oftentimes even with say liberal, more liberal and more conservative people or, or throw libertarians in there as well. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they agree on the issue. Oftentimes they agree that something should be done. Oftentimes they disagree on who should do it or what mm -hmm. the solution should be. Right. So take, take, take any issue. Okay. Homelessness, okay? Someone who considers themselves a progressive most likely thinks that the government needs even more money to deal with the issue and that maybe there should be housing first policies and harm reduction policies, you know, to, you know, get people off drugs and so on. Um, and they think, okay, this, this, is the, this is the role of the government. This is the role of the state. The government needs to deal with this, whether it's federal, it's local, whatever, you know, that's their view. Homelessness should be tolerated. Mm -hmm. The drug use should be tolerated. It shouldn't be treated as a crime, so on and so forth. Libertarians will often have, you know, they'll agree on some of that, but they'll disagree with that, that it's the state and the government that should primarily mm -hmm. be doing that, right? Maybe they'd even say, oh, you know, taxes should in fact be cut. And, you know, this should be, and you know, this organization should do this or individuals should do it. Conservatives are going to have a different approach. Everyone's, everyone agreed that homelessness is is a bad thing. No one is there saying, yeah, we want more homelessness. We want more citizens uh, suffering on the street. We want more people yeah. getting addicted. No, that's not anybody's position. But when you do this binary straw manning thing, mm -hmm. you can always just make it seem like someone holds the belief 
for the worst possible reason, right? So that person, that person wants to cut taxes because they hate poor people, because they want more people to die, because they want more people. It's like, no, maybe they just think the government sucks. Maybe they think taxation is theft. Maybe they think that the government is not the best apparatus to solve this problem. Maybe they've seen the government supposedly trying to do it for decades and they're making it not even better. They're making it worse. And Mm -hmm. so they'd rather those funds go to a different place or they're not taking in the first place. Right. So, but, but people don't like to do this. You saw this whole thing over the past two years, right? Anyone who's not hundred percent on board with lockdowns and mandates and restrictions and what, why? Oh, you want grandma to die. You want people to die. You hate people. You want people to suffer and die. You're pro COVID, right? You're an anti-vaxxer. You're anti-science. You hate science. Right. And it's just like, bro, it's so immature. Yeah, I can understand the desire to want to do this, to just make it seem like everyone who disagrees with you is a is a vicious and terrible human being. But that's just not reality. And it's really counterproductive because then people are just yelling at each other. Look, Look at the whole Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter debate. This has been going on for five years. I'm like, bro, you're both saying the same thing. You're literally saying the same thing. You're you're having a debate for six years about whether the phrase all lives matter is racist or if black it's like who cares you all want to see less people dying at the hands of police you want to all want to see less people dying in general everyone here is agrees that people shouldn't be discriminated against or treated differently based on their skin color or other you all agree yeah you, you're, you're literally all agreeing and you're getting so caught up in the nonsense that you never find a solution because you'd rather be screaming at each other about Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter instead of going, okay, how can we improve the police training so that less people of all, fewer people of all yeah. colors are, you know, die at the hands of police when they absolutely shouldn't, right? What what can we do to fix this and to fix that? And if people could just put down those weapons, yeah. <laughs> you know, and put down yeah. the vitriol for a little bit, I, I genuinely think people could find solutions. But I think people care more about scoring points for their political team than sometimes they care about actually trying to fix the problem. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's no better like case study for that than the pandemic and how mm-hmm. ridiculously unnuanced all the conversation around it became. Like it, that was probably the number one reason that I was like, screw this. I'm going to start speaking out about yeah. it. <laughs> it was just to, I remember I was in, uh, my mom lives in LA and I was staying with her and we could see the beach from her apartment and we, they closed the beaches after we knew that it didn't really spread outside, mm-hmm. but they closed the beaches and still they'd have the taxpayer funded rakes coming every day to, uh, to, mm-hmm. to smooth out the footsteps that weren't there that we were all paying for, for some reason. But then they started sending cop cars out at like 4am surfers would go out by themselves with a surfboard, just themselves, and like go out before the sun even came up to just get a surf in to enjoy this this beach. This I mean, they're paying exorbitant taxes to live there. The cost of living is insane. They just want to enjoy the beach that they're there to enjoy. And the cop cars would come with like spotlights from, mm-hmm. like I don't even know how they spotted them from like a quarter of a mile away, zooming across the beach and giving them thousand dollar fines. And I'm I remember sitting and watching this stuff and being like oh my gosh, the world is getting so crazy and so insane and so totalitarian that I just like, how can I not speak out now? Like what, what is the limit and like what freedoms are not going to be taken away or at risk, especially if we tolerate this once, like what precedent does this set? 
for mm-hmm. for emergencies going forward. Not that I don't think that there were were legitimate emergencies and like two weeks to slow the spread. I was I was on board for that. That made sense. But then two weeks has now been like two years, and we've still never had really productive conversation about about still not where we go. Like even in New York, um, they they dropped the vaccine mandate to go into or the pass to go into like restaurants and gyms and everywhere. But then there's still an employer mandate. And then Eric, like I, I like Eric Adams. He's very pragmatic. But, you know, he drops the 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 citywide mandate. And then there's still a mandate for employees, except not Kyrie Irving because he's important. And like the whole thing is just so illogical and disjointed. And I just don't understand how we haven't had like a cultural conversation about about what the hell just happened and how we mm-hmm. don't approach the next issue that's inevitably going to come up with the same like chaos. It's just insane. It's really interesting. I mean, there's there's so much to say on that. And I, I also don't think full, people fully appreciate how global this yeah. psychosis has been. It's been really global. I've been to eight countries over the past two years, dozens of cities, and the it's bananas. Like yeah. there are places that are just completely nutty. And then there's places where like, you know, it's like COVID doesn't, COVID doesn't exist yeah. and never did. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's not, it's just not a thing. Um, it, it, it's really, really strange. But I think that, you know, something we're really living in the age of emotionality. Mm. And I think that the biggest problem that the modern Western world is facing in, in, let me not let me not over egg it there. There's multiple problems. But I think one reason why it's really hard to find solutions to anything is because of immaturity. I think it's been deemed that emotions are more important than facts, more important mm-hmm. than fixing problems, more, more important than addressing issues. What matters is making people feel good. Right. Not what not what does good. Everything's it's all about feeling the masks. It's yeah. all about feeling the transgender conversation. It's all about feelings. Yeah. Everything is about feelings and feelings. And, oh, you know, there's a million people here and there's this one person who's really emotional and that could, you know, emotionally make them feel bad or weird or whatever. And that always overrides and trumps the thing mm. that matters. Right. So. You yeah. never make any headway because you, you can't even have the conversation. Because if you have the conversation, someone's ego might be bruised. Someone might be offended by this. Someone doesn't like that or whatever. And I think it's just emotional incontinence. I, I think yeah. that if you cannot honestly discuss issues, you cannot solve them. Or any solution that's proposed is likely to do more harm than good because you've incorrectly diagnosed the issue. If you always have to tiptoe around absolutely everything and you can't just talk and be frank and be willing to risk potentially offending someone and potentially being offended, you never solve anything. Um, and, and this is what's been going on for the past two years. There has not been an honest conversation, right? Even, even if you want to outsource this to the doctors and the experts, right? There's a lot of doctors and experts who have wildly different opinions on everything from masking to lockdowns to the vaccines themselves to the mandates. Why don't you get, we should have been every day. There should have been conversations happening. Not just, not just Fauci, the one doctor who exists in America, apparently who doesn't even see patients, right? Not just one person broadcasting. 
right? There should be, okay, multiple doctors, virologists, epidemiologists. There should also be economists. There should be religious leaders. There should be all these people from different areas, also just common everyday people. Okay, let's talk. Let's, let's, let's have a Q&A session. Let's sit here. Let's discuss this. Let's ask hard questions. Let's look at the data. Let's rebut it, right? And see, see, see what happens. Let people make up their minds. Let people reach conclusions and so on. It never happened. It's like it was just we suppressed this one side of it. And this Absolutely. is what people are freaking out, out about now, right? Not because they think they're going to get banned, but because uh, dissent will now be tolerated. Yeah. That's why people are freaking out about the whole Twitter thing. It's like, oh, my opponents are no longer just going to be silenced and being yeah. deplatformed. And it's, um, you know, I think, it, I think it's come here slowly. I think it's come here slowly. But I think that um, this is where we are right now. Um, yeah. And the immaturity thing has nothing to do with age. There are people who are your age and younger who are mature, very, very mature in this regard and willing to talk and mm -hmm. converse and debate and discuss ideas. And there are people who in their 60s and their 70s and they are terrified. They won't yeah. do it. They won't answer questions. They won't even let you ask them. They'll just resort to name calling. And it's kind of sad and disappointing to see. It absolutely is. And I think one of the scariest things to me is this trend of completing words with violence at like a literal level now. Because when you up the stakes and you up the ante and you say, no, you're actually making me feel unsafe now. Like mm. this is this is cornering people and scaring them from saying anything because it's a matter of literal physical safety is essentially the, the especially on college campuses, you know, mm. you want safe spaces and trigger warnings and all the, all the insulation from different ideas because in some people's minds, it's literally tantamount to violence, which is just incredible. And that's how you end up in a situation where, you know, Chris Rock making a joke is a one-to-one -one with Will Smith smacking him in the face because mm -hmm. words are violence. And so why isn't that adequate self-defense? And, you know, I fear where our culture is headed with that sort of mindset because that's the logical extension of that fallacy. And um, I, I just don't know how we move forward, especially if young people of all people are the ones that are kind of embracing that mindset because like you're supposed to be rebellious. And for some reason, the rebels of my generation end up being conformists. Like I almost mm. feel like everyone has the same purple hair or the same tattoo or the same this or that. And, and ideologically, it's almost the same thing. Like everyone's the same edgy Marxist at my college or this mm. or that. And, you know, we're not actually poking at what we're told to believe. We're not actually towing, towing the, they're all towing the line. We're not actually kind of, um, investigating the more murky or questionable or controversial things because that's where progress is supposed to happen and as you get older you're supposed to get more rigid and more set in the cultural ways and not the mm. other way around but unfortunately like a huge swath of my generation is just refusing to engage with controversy and nuance and that's just so terrifying for where our future is headed do you know do you know part of what i think it is and i don't think that many people have made this made this observation. And mm -hmm. I think this is one of the big challenges for, you know, what people call generation Z. I think all of the hard and important fights have been fought and won. Mm. No, I <laughs> it's right. So if you th think, think back to think back to previous decades, right? If you were someone who's, you know, a liberal or, you know, more on the left, or even someone who's, uh, you know, in the center or whatever, there was always, there were always, at every point in history, even within the U.S., right, there was always a, a demographic 
there mm-hmm. was always a part of society, a group of people, racial group, ethnic group, gender, sexuality, whatever, who things were genuinely discriminatory against, right? The laws on the books were not equal. The way mm-hmm. people were treated in society, people were getting beaten up, killed, segregated, discriminated against in all sorts of ways. Um, and it, not only was it happening, it was also tolerated, mm-hmm. right? Um this is the first generation, thank God, where that's not the case. Mm-hmm. But I think what you have now is you have all of these people who are activist-minded and they want to they fight some battle or whatever, but they don't even know what that battle is. I think that's part of why the left has become so obsessed with the trans stuff recently. Because mm. when did they become obsessed with that? After gay marriage was legalized. That's when they became obsessed with the trans stuff. Yeah. It wasn't a conversation. So yeah. they've somehow latched onto this notion that, okay, trans or trans is the next, that's the next movement, right? Mm-hmm. And it's incoherent. Yeah. Right. That's oftentimes they say we're fighting for trans rights. It's like, okay, which which rights specifically? Yeah. They can't even give you an answer. They don't know what it is. So I think there are millions and millions of people who want to be warriors and they want to fight and whatever, but they don't even know. They, they don't really know what to do and it ends up becoming very self-destructive and it mm-hmm. ends up becoming very regressive because they start creating problems yeah. in their effort to solve imaginary ones. That's what I see going on. So now, yeah. okay, now you're going back to racially segregating people. Now you're going to uh, trampling over women's rights and, and women's individuality to try to appease this tiny, tiny fragment of people who call themselves trans. Now you're, you now you're undoing all of these previous gains because you want to fight for something. And I think, I think that's where a lot of it stems from. I think a lot of people haven't yeah. just looked up and gone, Hmm, actually we've made a lot of progress over the past century. Um, maybe we should be a little more, you know, rather than a hammer, maybe we should just be using like a little, you know, a little pick to, okay, oh, there's still that issue. There's still that issue. But instead it's like dismantle the system, deconstruct everything, abolish everything. And it's like, dude, you're just going to make more problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of where the um, kind of shift from the equality conversation to the equity conversation came Uh because that's just the extension of, of picking up on this really laudable history that America and Western society has of, of progressing towards a more equal society, but then, Mm -hmm. you know, grappling with the fact that like, of course there are still issues and problems and on regional levels or even some larger, broader national or international levels, but it's pretty profound how far we've come. Like it's, it's, and it's something to be celebrated. And I, that's why I just, I don't have much sympathy for the view of American history of looking back at our past sins and saying that our, our country is damned because of them with an original sin. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's a story of coming away from that and, and realizing a, a truer, a truer um, kind of manifestation of our founding principles. And yeah, I, I worry that my generation is really caught up to your point and this progress always equals better, even though you can mm-hmm. progress a worse place and um yeah it's definitely scary and i would say you know i mean i'm i'm socially live and let live and like i just don't really care what people do with their lives but there's certainly aspects of the the transgender movement that just defy or require you to to deny what you know to be scientifically and literally true 
And mm-hmm. that is where it just crosses a line for me. And it's just like, that actually isn't progress. There are aspects of just accepting people for how they want to be, because it just doesn't make a difference to me, but mm-hmm. don't tread on, on my rights or on my, um, my internal sense of truth in the pursuit of that. Yeah, exactly. And if you can get people to, if you can get people to believe or to pretend to believe things that are totally absurd and which go against what they know deep down and have always known in their entire lives to be correct. And nothing is more simple than human beings being a sexually dimorphic species with male and female. Um, If you can get them to believe that, then actually it's a really dangerous slope because then anything goes. Someone can convince you that the sky is purple and that grass is pink and that two plus two equals five because none of those are any less, none of those are any more illogical than the idea. You know, if, if, if someone can point me to a, point me to a biological male anytime in history, anywhere in the world who's given birth, just one, show me one, can't do it. Right. Everyone here is born of a female and we know this, it's nothing controversial. Everyone knows it, but you're somehow supposed to deny it. And I think that is where, as you said, that's where there's a line of like, look, this is stupid, right? We have to call it what it is. This is nonsensical. It's incoherent. It's not making sense. And, um, you know, there are values and standards and principles that need to be in place in the society. Stuff can't just become so liberal or libertarian that, there, there's just no no standards anymore and there, everything falls apart, right? There has to be a framework, right? There, there, there has to be a framework. So, you know, I'm very, like, as far as the state and the government is concerned, I think there should be fewer laws rather than more laws for the most part. But there are certain things that are very important and there are certain, yeah, like just, just standards and morality and social and culture codes and things for people to aim for and strive for that we, that we absolutely need. Yeah. And it's incredible to see just in a couple of years, like the issue of, could you imagine in like 2015 talking about like transgender participation in sports, which is, I could, (laughs) (laughs) I told, I told, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Ricky, I told people that was going to happen. Yeah. I was crazy. Yeah. I was crazy because they, they couldn't see it at that time. Yeah. And I'm sure that Joe Biden, who today is like a champion of that sort of stuff, is really thinking that all along for the past several decades. Like, it's just amazing mm-hmm. to see how quickly people will pick up the next thing and how quickly that can go awry, because that would be the perfect example of like, yes, I want to accept people and just be a decent human and just not care about what they're doing. But how mm-hmm. does that then sign me up for this entire like logical slippery slide into all of a sudden I have to like just deny basic biological reality. It's just, it's unfortunate <laughs> to it say is. the least. Ricky, it's been amazing talking to you. Um, I so checked fun. out some of your articles and what you're writing about, I think is very important and you come from a unique and necessary perspective on it all. So I just want to give you some words of encouragement to keep it up. And where can people find you online? People can find me on my Twitter, Ricky Schlott, R-I-K-K-I-S-C-H-L-O-T-T, and um, on the Lost Debate podcast as well, um, which is on all the various platforms. (laughs) Awesome. Ricky, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corian's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corian.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corian.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.